Let's turn now, friends, with the help of God, to consider the portion we read in Luke 7. And we're going to consider the story running from verse 36 down to the end of the chapter. The sinful woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, this story is frequently confused with the uh, story of Mary of Bethany anointing the Lord Jesus in John chapter 12. But these uh, two stories have really very little in common other than the anointing itself. And unlike the pious Mary of Bethany, this woman is described for us in verse 37 as a sinner. Now, the Bible uses that term for people who break the laws of God. So a sinner is anyone guilty of any sin whatsoever, which means, of course, that we are all sinners here this evening. And furthermore, we were born that way. That's what we were singing about a moment ago in Psalm 51. However, Jesus informs us here that this woman had a particular problem with her sin. Verse 47, he says, her sins, which are many. Some of us, though we know that we are sinners, and though we know that we cannot stop sinning to some degree or other at least, yet we do not set out to uh, sin willfully and with a cavalier attitude. We try to curb our sinful inclinations. That wasn't the case with this woman. Her sins, which are many. Now, before we unpack that, we'll say a word, first of all, about this surprising uh, and rare invitation that the Lord Jesus received at dinner, an invitation to dinner. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Uh, we know that most of these people called Pharisees, they were a constant source of grief to the Lord Jesus. They were always trying to ensnare him, trying to trap him into saying something or doing something that they could use to bring false accusations against him. They always insisted that he was nothing but a fraud. But nevertheless, some of these Pharisees, we have to confess, they seem to have been decent people. Men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and the tutor Paul had when he was a student in Jerusalem, Gamaliel, these men, and no doubt many others, they seem like decent people in a social, religious kind of way. And it's difficult for me to say what category of Pharisee this particular man, Simon, belonged to. But we see that during this dinner, we get some indications 
of the motives of his heart. Now, this story has been recorded for your benefit and for mine. God isn't interested in recording biographical stories just for the sake of a story. And his interest here is that we should learn from the story principles of conduct which are relevant, significant, and important to everyone who cares about the things of God, everyone who cares about their eternal destiny. And these principles of conduct are, in effect, common to humanity in general, if humanity would only listen to the teaching of the Bible. But they are in particular relevant to those within the pale of the Christian church. So there are some, some significant examples of these principles in this story, and that's why it's worth our while studying it in some detail. Now, we have three major players on the stage of this story. There's Simon the Pharisee, there's this sinful woman, and there is Jesus of Nazareth. And we can benefit greatly by considering each of them in turn and the role they play in the story recorded here. So let's look, at, first of all, at this man, Simon the Pharisee. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Uh, these people, uh, and the more I, I read my Bible and study these things, the Pharisees were a complex people. It's sometimes difficult to know where they were coming from. It's difficult to analyze their mindset because religiously and morally and ethically, they had much going for them. If they were guilty of anything at all, generally speaking, it was being over-righteous and over-zealous. They were brought up in a good way, in the sense that they were brought up to be religious. They were brought up to believe in Jehovah God. They were brought up to shun the gods of the nations. They were brought up to have good manners. They were brought up to be upright citizens. They had lots going for them. And I think that's what Paul is hinting at when he refers in his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless in the righteousness of the law. Now, as far as salvation is concerned, we can scorn these things. But we have to appreciate that at another level, these things had a lot going for them. And no doubt, Simon could have claimed a similar testimony to Saul of Tarsus. Now, Simon is, is rather unusual in the sense that he features very large in this story, but he doesn't feature anywhere else. We know absolutely nothing else about him. There's no other reference in him, to him in the entire gospel narrative. But some commentators suggest that despite that lack of 
any information. Some commentators suggest that he gave this invitation to Christ because Christ must have cured him or healed him of some malady or some handicap or such thing in the past at some stage. And that this dinner was a token of his appreciation. Now, I don't know whether that is right or not, but it certainly fits the pattern of how somebody like this would perhaps behave. But in any case, we find him here in his own house, and evidently this was his family home. There would have been a wife, and there would have been children. And typically, in that culture, others would have been invited to this dinner as well. And I think that's suggested to us by the story itself. And they would have gathered around this table. He went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now, in that culture, they didn't sit at a table the way you and I sit at a table. They didn't have tables with long legs. They had tables with very short legs, very close to the floor, so that the guests and the family, they actually reclined on cushions. And they would usually recline in a certain order around the table. We can see something of this in the upper room when they sat for the Last Supper. There was a certain order in which the disciples sat around the table. Now, it's only as events unfold here that we discover where Simon stood culturally and spiritually. Whatever the order was at the table, he was eyeing Jesus of Nazareth with a measure of doubt. And here's his thought, verse 39. This man, if, now notice that word, if he were a prophet, he doesn't believe for a moment that he was a bona fide prophet of God. And you know, my friends, when people doubt Jesus Christ in this way, even today, and if you are doubting Jesus Christ to any degree here this evening, you are only a breath away from eternal condemnation. Only a breath away. Because God could remove you from a sin of time just like that, in the twinkling of an eye. Don't let God find you doubting Jesus Christ in any way whatsoever. I think there's an important lesson in this, in the story of another doubter, doubting Thomas, in the story in John chapter 20. Most of us can recall that story and that somewhat a wonderful and amazing scene where Jesus told him, reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Now, I think most of you uh, are familiar with that. But do you remember what else Jesus said to doubting Thomas? Be not faithless, but believing. Be not faithless. In other words, Thomas, you're acting like somebody who has no faith at all. And I think Jesus could have said the same thing when he looked at, at Peter in the shadow of Calvary. And where was Peter? 
Was he close to his Savior? Was he close to the man that he declared only some time before that? Thou art the Christ of God. Oh, no. He wasn't close to him. He was afar off. Jesus could have said to him, why are you conducting yourself? Why are you behaving like somebody who is faithless? Now, whether we see ourselves like Simon, or Thomas, or Peter, it makes little difference. If we are not where we ought to be in relation to God, now we are quite confident that Thomas and Peter were saved men, although in those instances they were acting otherwise. But we can't always extend that confidence to others. Take, for example, a man who worked and walked and lived alongside the great Apostle Paul for who knows how long. Demas, the missionary. I have no confidence whatsoever that that man was saved. You remember how Paul describes him? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Who could be confident in that man's salvation? So here's the question. What confidence could I as a minister put in your relationship with God? How could I or the elders here know that you are a believer or not? How close do you live to the Lord Jesus Christ? Indeed, how close should you be to Jesus Christ in your life? What's the answer to that question? How close should you be to Jesus Christ here this evening? Well, you answered your own question a moment ago. When you sang those words, kiss ye the Son. That's so close you have to be to him. Kiss ye the Son. Why? Lest you perish in the way. That kiss, my friends, that is the kiss of faith that never does Jesus Christ. And you make sure that you are that close to Christ, that you have kissed the Son, and that you are not leaving room for doubt regarding your relationship with God. And we shall see in a moment how this woman will demonstrate her own kiss of faith. So let me move secondly to look at this woman. Verse 37. Behold a woman in the city which was a sinner. Now, I'm no doubt I've mentioned this before from this pulpit, but we should always pay attention to this word, behold, in our authorized version translation. Modern versions of the Bible have largely abandoned this word, but this is a very significant word because it's God's way of insisting, pay close attention to what is about to follow. That is what is always stressing for us 
There is something significant for you in this story that is going to run from this. Behold, a woman in this city which was a sinner. So it's fair to say that there is something worth your while beholding here. Now, this home, as I've mentioned earlier, belonged to a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. And ordinarily, this woman would not come a mile near this man's home. She wouldn't come a mile near a Pharisee. And furthermore, if a Pharisee saw this woman, a harlot, coming towards him, he would cross to the other side of the street. She lived in a parallel universe to the Pharisees. But here we see, my friends, the sovereign God of heaven and earth at work, bringing them together around this table. No one else on earth could have achieved this, that a harlot could be brought into a Pharisee's house. No one else could have achieved it. Now, whatever we think of her reputation, it was far more obnoxious to herself than it may seem to be to you. Far more obnoxious to herself. I would suggest to you, my friends, that this is one of the heroines of the Bible. It must have taken a mountain of courage on the part of this woman to leave her own home and to walk that distance to the house of a Pharisee. It took a mountain of courage. And furthermore, she knew where she was going and she knew why she was going there. Look at what she did prior to leaving her own home. Verse 37. She brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, had somebody stopped this woman as she walked out the door of her own home and asked her, why are you taking that box with you? She possibly couldn't have explained it. You see, sometimes when the Holy Spirit is striving with a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, sometimes we find ourselves doing things and even saying things, and we're never quite sure why. That's so it is for many people who are seeking answers for the deeper things in life. So with incredible courage and tenacity, she came and stepped over the threshold of a Pharisee's house. Now, Simon, I have no doubt, knew her reputation, yet he didn't stop her. Ordinarily, he would have. He would have stoned her. But here, he doesn't stop her. And it's hard to avoid the conclusion that he was a bit of a rascal and that he left her deliberately to come into her home to test Jesus. Look at verse 39 again. If he were a prophet, 
he would have known what kind of woman this was. So it's a bit of an electrifying moment, one that hushed the whole room as she made a tentative way to that table. And I would guess that everyone around that table would have been staring at her. As we read in verse 38, she stood at the feet of Jesus, weeping, weeping. Now, it's likely that everyone would also have been eyeing, not Jesus, but Simon. Eyeing Simon far more than they were eyeing Jesus. Because they were expecting, surely, a self-righteous outburst from this Pharisee. They were expecting, surely, for him immediately to expel her from her house. She would have been defiling their home. But no, that doesn't happen. The room fell into deadly silence. The only noise was this woman crying. Crying and falling at the feet of Jesus, broken in spirit, broken in heart. Verse 38, she began to wash his feet with tears. I would put it to you, my friends. This is one of the best examples we have in the entire Bible of three things. Conviction of sin, sorrow over one's guilt, mourning over one's own corruption. One of the best examples. Her volume of tears was such that she could wash his feet and dry them with her hair. But that wasn't enough for her. That wasn't enough. She took those words of Psalm 2 seriously and literally unashamedly, not caring what others thought, she began kissing the son. She kissed his feet. And notice the final act of her contrition. In verse 38 again, she anointed his feet with ointment. Mary of Bethany, as I mentioned earlier, repeated this not long after, before the Lord's death, um, when she anointed him in that wonderful scene in John chapter 12. But it's been suggested, and I'm sympathetic with this suggestion, that there is something significant in us being told that this woman took this box of ointment from her home and used it to wash the feet of Christ. You remember in the story of John chapter 12 in Mary of Bethany and her anointing, Jesus indicates that she possessed that box, the alabaster box, for quite some time. You remember what he said? Against the day of my burying, she had kept this. Who knows for how long? But she kept it for some time for that purpose. Whereas? It seems that this woman had the ointment for her own personal use in her obnoxious profession. 
by using it here, by using it on the feet of her Savior. She was, in fact, symbolically sacrificing it, symbolically stating, I will never, ever use this again. This woman would rise to her feet, a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things passed away. Behold, all things are new. Be all of that as it may. Let's not lose sight of the principal issues involved here. We may never know the drama and the heroics demonstrated by this woman in her own spiritual journey. We may know, not know anything of this extent. But we must know something of the conviction of sin, of the need for repentance, of seeking out Jesus Christ, and especially know something of kissing the Son. These are significant, important elements of the Christian religion and the Christian's personal faith. And not only so, we're not just talking here about the experience of becoming a Christian. This is the very beginning of this woman's Christian life. But you and I need those things in our ongoing Christian lives. We must never dare think that we need no more of this repentance, that we need no more of this conviction of sin, that we need no more of this mourning over our sinful, corrupt state. We are constantly needing these things in our lives, and we always will while there is breath in our body. This is a believer's testimony. But notice further, as this fascinating story develops, the silence that must have filled the room. No one spoke. No one objected. No one even approved. Not even Jesus. He just sat there, watching her. Not a pat on the head. Not a word of encouragement. Nothing. Nothing. But she didn't need any of that. She didn't need it because what she was doing, she was doing on the overtures of faith. She knew this is where she must be. She knew this is what she must do. And the application of this for you and the challenge for you, if you're not already a Christian here this evening, don't you go looking for a rainbow in heaven with your name written on it to become a Christian. You ain't going to get it. This is what you must do. Kiss the sun. Do it. Do it in faith. Do it in trust. Do it in love to the Savior. Just do it. Let me move on. To look at Jesus, the Savior. Verse 40. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Now, although no one spoke audibly, 
during this event, Simon the Pharisee spoke secretly in his unbelieving heart. Verse 39. When the Pharisee saw it, he spoke within himself. Never for a moment did he suspect that the Holy Spirit was revealing this to Jesus. And this soliloquy, this conversation he was having with himself, wasn't in praise of this woman. It wasn't envy at her courage. Oh, no. It was criticism. Criticism of Jesus Christ, far more than criticism of a prostitute in his home. Here's what he thought. Verse 39 again. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He had no idea the place that God had for sinners. He had no idea the provision God had made precisely for women like this. And how shocking, therefore, it must have been to hear every Pharisee hearing Jesus saying, publicans, that's the hated tax collectors, publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of heaven before you. What a shocking statement that must have been to their sensitive ears. And hearing others declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was a friend of publicans and sinners. And that he delighted to eat and drink with publicans and sinners. Simon thinks he can't possibly know this woman's reputation. So Jesus sets before him profound lessons on Christian living. Lessons that we can all gain from. Verse 40. Simon I have somewhat to say to thee. And he then posed a problem, a, a parable rather to him in verses 41, 42, and 43. Two men, one owed much, one owed a little. But they had no money to pay their debt. The creditor mentioned in verse 42 frankly forgave them both. Just forgave them. Now, in this timeless parable, the creditor is God. The debtors are sinners. But those two debtors, they weren't dismissed on the whim of generosity. Sometimes the world acts in magnanimous ways towards people indebted to them. Sometimes, perhaps you've said this to others who have been indebted to thee. Ah, look, forget it. Don't worry about that day. Just forget it. God can't do that. It's impossible for God to do that. The debt of sin has to be paid. And God will frankly forgive, but only if we believe that Jesus Christ has paid our debt for us. So by this parable, Jesus showed Simon, and he showed yourselves, the sheer simplicity of salvation by free grace alone. Nothing, as the hymn writer put it, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. 
So Jesus challenged Simon. Verse 42. Which of them is this who love him most? The Pharisee had no choice but to answer, verse 43, he to whom he forgave most. Now, the matter could have ended there. The point was made, and surely the lesson must have been learned. But ah, my friends, this Pharisee had a long way to go if he was going to match this woman in sin awareness. A long way to go. So Jesus cleverly used her to shame Simon into looking at his own sin-hardened heart in verses 44, 45, and 46. Seest thou this woman, he says to Simon, pointing to the harlot. And then he took Simon through the dark valleys of his own sinful, stubborn, unbelieving heart. You gave me no water to wash my feet. She washed and dried my feet with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but this woman hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You gave me no oil to anoint my head. But this woman has used her fragrance to anoint my feet. None of this would have been lost on Simon. He was a Pharisee. He knew the common customs of Middle Eastern culture. In Israel, as well as in other nations, washing, anointing, kissing, there were common expressions of greeting strangers. So for Simon to invite Jesus to dinner and not offer these customary expressions of greeting, it was insulting to Jesus. Whereas this woman took those tokens and elevated them to the 10th degree, elevated them to a high spiritual level. And immediately, Jesus took the conversation up to the same high spiritual level. Verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. In other words, what you just saw, Simon, you Pharisee, was a heart overflowing with love and gratitude to a merciful and gracious God. And the former harlot was told three things. Thy sins are forgiven. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Oh, my friends, there are many topics in this story that are extreme importance to Christian people and to anybody frequenting the Christian church and sitting out under the sound of the gospel. Many, many topics. But in the end of the day, in the end of the day, only these three things really matter. Jesus Christ telling us through his word, by his spirit, 
thy sins are forgiven. Thy faith has saved you. Go in peace. These are the three things that really matter. And on the overtures of these three blessings, my friends, we can be like this woman. Live life to God's glory. Serving the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing and experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. And looking forward to dying the death of the righteous. This woman experienced all of that. The sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Go in peace. Oh, my friends, make sure that is your own testimony before leaving this world and before this very day is out. I would urge you once again, Kiss the Son. Make sure that you have surrendered to his claims, that you have put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him as your Lord, God, prophet, priest, king, and savior. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank thee for thy wonderful word the word that is brimful of precious nuggets that will edify our souls, that will teach and instruct us in the way that we should go. Help us, Lord, to respond to Peter's final exhortation. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a challenge that is for each one of us here on this Sabbath evening. Bless us, help us to think and to meditate over all that we have read and heard here this evening and have mercy upon our souls. For Jesus' sake, amen.